but then yeah when i was i don't know probably six sessions in with my psych she said to me she said um i'm telling these stories and, and i and she said to you there just comes a time in someone's when, in your life when you realize you just need to let go of all the stories you've been hearing from your past and i couldn't actually talk i wasn't crying but i couldn't talk yeah i just couldn't i was like oh my god i have been carrying these like they're like they've, when she said it, it i was like yeah it's been heavy like i feel like it's this weight's been like i don't have to carry them around life gives you two choices when it throws everything at you you can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons and as the old saying goes you turn it into sweet delicious lemonade and that's exactly what this podcast is all about Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons, into lemonade. Because we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. 13 years ago, Hugh Van Kylenberg's life changed forever when he visited a remote village in India. There he learned about three principles that would go on to change the course of his life forever. Gratitude, mindfulness and empathy, or as he refers to it, GEM. A school teacher by trade, Hugh created a program founded on these values called the Resilience Project. The curriculum is now delivered to more than a million Australians across 1,000 schools as well as sporting clubs and workplaces. He was just released the follow-up to his first book, The Resilience Project, and it's called Let Go, his most personal work yet based on when he realised during the pandemic that he just wasn't okay anymore. A mighty hard feat to admit when you're known as the resilience guy. I was lucky enough to get a sneak peek of the book, and while it's full of the same wit, storytelling and banter he was known for, it's also deep, raw, and explores themes such as shame, perfection and ego, as well as his family's trauma and how he dealt with it. This is the second time the wonderful Hugh has been on the Lemonade podcast, and I can guarantee you'll love listening to him just as much the second time around. Here's Hugh. You welcome back to the Lemonade Podcast. Do you realise that you're, well, you probably don't realise because you're not monitoring it that closely, but you're the only person I've had on twice in the whole I podcast history. I, I know exactly I know exactly who you've had when you've had. <laughs> That's why you're very, so chuffed. <laughs> I keep a very close eye on those things. <laughs> well, I feel very chuffed. Thank you so much. That's very kind. Now, Hugh, it's been a huge year since you've been, you were on the podcast last September where yes. the world is a very different place between now and then. We're all vaccinated. We're out of lockdown. How are you doing with the world opening up again? Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Like I was sitting at a pub. I was at a pub having a pint. This is like the day after we came out of lockdown with my brother and Ryan Shelton, who do the podcast with. And it was like this very strange hot day in Melbourne. We haven't had any hot days, but we just had oh, one out of the blue about a month ago. Yes. Yes. We had like one, one nice day and we were sitting upstairs at the Marquee of Lawn and I said, oh, it's a bit hot up here. And then Ryan said, yeah, the sun's right in my face. And Josh goes, yeah, this is table isn't ideal. And then we went, oh my God, what are we doing? Like we've been out of lockdown for 24 hours and we're, we're complaining already. already. Yes, we're already reverting <laughs> yeah, to old habits. <laughs> yeah. So Ryan said, let's just sit here and sweat profusely. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Did you find it overwhelming at all? Or were you one of those people that are able to just dive back in and just kind of just take off where we left off? Not in the slightest bit overwhelmed. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, me either. I was like, <laughs> even this morning, I was on the way to the chemist and I went to get early this morning 
and our chemist was closed. So I had to go to a 24-hour one, which is a fair way away. And I found myself in peak hour traffic on the way back home. Oh, yeah. And I actually, I actually did. I actually enjoyed it. I was like, really? this feels like, this feels like normal again. This feels like, I mean, it does also help that I knew that our two kids, it's breakfast time and breakfast time with our two kids at home is a nightmare. So I've got to go sit in was, peak hour traffic. Sorry. <laughs> peak hour traffic was more enjoyable to be honest. So, um, yeah. no, but I just, I, I don't know. I just, I'm very nostalgic person and I feel myself like, you know, I, I'm just noticing things are like, Oh, that's what, this is what, like, like what it used to be like. And, and I think that's because I've got kids. I want my kids to experience all the joys that I experienced and walking around for an hour a day, seeing people with face masks on, that's not what I want them to, that's how I don't want them to, I mean, that's all they know, but there's so much more to the world than getting out of your house for an hour a day. And So true in um, your bubble. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, totally. So it's, it's, um, no, I haven't been overwhelmed. I've been overjoyed by it, to be honest. How about you? Um, no, I don't get overwhelmed by getting back out and socializing again, which is awesome. Um, because I know a lot of people have to take it very easily and always see those things on Instagram telling people to, you know, take it easy. You don't have to do it all at once. I'm like, yes, I do have to do it all at once. <laughs> I think you don't understand. All, yes. And I think we've got the trauma of it all being taken away really quickly again. So we're like, no, 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 no. This could all be gone again. Totally. We need to keep doing it. But anyway, you were very well, productive in lockdown though, writing a new uh, book. Well, I tell you, it was... I, so after the first book, Penguin said, you want to do another one? And I said, no, I don't have anything to write about. I've told you every, I've got told you all my stories. I've got nothing <laughs> yes. left. Um, and they're kind of saying, well, I think, you know, every for second year after the book, they said, I think maybe this year I said, I don't have anything to write about. And then I, I kind of felt like I thought I will do another book. And when I do this book, I'm going to go to a beach house and I'm going to like write every day. And I'm going to like drink coffee and go for runs and go for swims and have fires and think and write in journals and do all that kind of stuff for this book we agreed to the book and then 2021 happened and it was uh, the opposite the opposite of being at a beach by myself it was waiting till the kids had gone to bed yeah and waiting till penny had gone to bed and then starting to write at like 10 o'clock at night and finishing at one and then having my alarm clock set for like five in the morning and then getting up and 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 then the kids would get up at like 5 30 or 6 so i'd have like half an hour and it was just I mean, the irony of what I've, what I was writing about, you know, like trying to let go of, you know, perfection and all this kind of stuff when I was, I was getting so, it was really hard. It was, yeah. It, was, it doesn't sound relaxing whatsoever. Were there times no, where you're like, what the hell am I doing? Why am I even doing yeah. myself through this again? So, it was so many times, even like a month ago, like um, when we, the final copy editor went through it and, and had some feedback for me and I was like, oh. I thought I was finished. Like I just thought it was done. And, um, I don't care. And, Edit it all. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Just put it out to the world. I don't even, yeah. So um, yeah, there are plenty of times, but I, I do feel like um, I read the book when I was doing the audio book two weeks ago. No, it was a week ago now. Mm. It's only a week ago and I was reading it. Um, and that's when you pay attention to it most closely as an author, because it's done. Like you can't change anything. Yeah. And you're putting it out to the world as an audio book. So you really focus on how it should be read and the feeling of the book. And I have to say, I felt very, um, I was very proud. I felt like oh, that's good. the first book, the first book sold really well, which is really nice. And we were really happy with that. And I did care about that. Like I was worried it wasn't going to sell many copies, but this one, I don't, to be honest, I don't really, doesn't bother me as much if it doesn't sell many copies. I'm just really proud that I've written this because the other book kind of wrote itself. It took two and a half months yeah. to write it. It's the stories I've been telling on stage for 10 years. So they just float onto the page. This was like, what am I struggling with in my life right now? And so that was hard to write, but I think it's, um, um, it was a lot more vulnerable. So I'm, I'm quite proud of this one. 
Yeah, it is very candid and very honest. And I think what um, is really remarkable about it is that, um, you know, COVID gave us this chance, all of us this chance to pause and reflect and see if we're happy with our life and what we want to reassess. And it seems like it did have a huge impact on you as well. Do you think in a crazy way, I suppose this time was the reset we all needed to change gear and go in a new direction? Yes, I do. I provided we were sort of paying attention to the, to the messages that, mother nature was sort of trying to sell whoever was trying to send us um i think some people just got extremely angry and yeah which i did as well for a lot of it i was just so frustrated by it but it wasn't until i think i said in the book i was doing a radio i mean i was being asked to do interview after interview on how you cope and i felt enormous pressure to be okay i was like oh okay so i'm the guy telling everyone how to cope i better be okay here and as you know like melbourne's it was the longest lockdown anywhere in the world and so as someone whose life, you know, I get enormous joy from performing on stage and and being out in public and doing that kind of stuff. I, I all, of, I've all of a sudden was, and our, our one-year-old was not sleeping. So she had a shocking year sleep-wise. Like yeah. she would wake up every couple of hours and I'm getting, I checked on my Garmin, all through, I shouldn't have, but all throughout winter, I was checking my Garmin. I was getting about, I was averaging about four hours sleep a night. Oh my God. And so, and everyone's saying, oh, so how do we cope? How do we cope? And then I did an interview with, we didn't name him in the book, but it was Dave Hughes. Dave, I did an interview with Dave Hughes and his drive show and Ed Coverley and Aaron Mullen, I think it is on in Sydney. And I had yep. had, had the thing we didn't put in the book was I'd also only had an hour and a half sleep. So I'd slept from five till six thirty. Oh my God. And then did the interview. And I was in this room, I was in this closet here trying to, and my son was banging on the door trying to get in. Holy and um, I know there's a lot of listeners and I'm trying, I was, it was quite stressful and I thought, oh, do I just let him in and they'll roll with it? But I, I don't know those. So I never met them before personally. So I didn't know if that was a ludi I could take it just say, oh, my son's come in. Also they're in Sydney. So they don't quite have the extent of, so I true. mean, no, they, they, I mean, they did, but we, we were a lot more broken by, by that point. We <laughs> totally but, um, broken. Yeah, yes. yeah. But, but Dave Hughes said, and he goes, oh, um, how are you going? How are you? And I, and I just said, I'm totally and utterly broken. And that's the first time I'd admitted it out loud. Like I hadn't even admitted it to myself because I, there were warning signs. Like I was a lot angrier than I had ever been. I was getting, I've never been angry in my entire, I've never got angry once in my entire life. And all of a sudden I'm getting angry at my kids. And I was like, this is so unfair on them. I've never been angry at anyone ever. And now I'm getting angry at them, angry at my wife. And that's just yeah. so unfair because she's doing it so tough as well. And angry at, you know, I'm seeing protesters and I'm getting so angry. And usually I'd go, um, well, we got to hear them out. Like, there's a reason they're angry. What is it? But I'm just like, fed up. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm I, that's not me. And and then, so there were warning signs. But then when I said it on the radio, I was like, oh wow, I've just told everyone I'm not okay. And I'm I can't have the phone. I went, oh god, what have I just done? Like, I'm meant to be the person telling everyone. But yes. it was funny. As soon as I went inside and told Penny, my wife, I just like I just felt so much better all of a sudden because I was like, okay. I'm not okay. And all of a sudden I'm very humbled by that, but I've admitted that. And I'm now curious, like, what do I do? And that's what comes when you admit that you're not doing too well, which I hope a lot of people did throughout this lockdown was just go, I'm fucked. I'm not okay. (laughs) Yeah. And I found that part really interesting when, and that's one of my questions where you talk about, you know, that you've always just been okay. And we always kind of just strive for that level of just of okayness, I suppose. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah I'm okay. And then yeah. the realization as the resilience guy that you're not okay must have just been this huge game changer. And as you said, you spoke to your wife about it. What yeah. what happened then? How did that change the change the game for you? I suppose. Well, it it, it changed enormously because I, I decided to go and see a therapist. Um, and I never I've been telling everyone all around Australia for ten years. It doesn't matter if you don't have a mental illness. Just go and see 
therapist and then and, I, and i'd never done it myself but i've been telling everyone to do it and then um <laughs> there was a bit of a, a a trial and error i saw a few people until i met this lady and oh my god like the stuff that she revealed to me that i would have never understood mm. if it wasn't for her and I, so if it wasn't for COVID, i wouldn't have seen her and if it wasn't for her i mean the stuff that i've realized about myself and my life and the people that i love in my life it's just I'm unbelievable. People that just, yeah, don't realize the point of therapy because you think you can talk to your friends about things like that, but it's completely different, right? When you're speaking to a professional, what they highlight to you. Yeah. There's enormous value in speaking to friends about the stuff you're struggling with. It's amazing. But what a psychologist will do is draw links. For me, what happened anyway, was that she was able to just establish moments in my life that have had a much bigger impact on me than I realized and then explain to me why, or get me to understand myself why these things have had a big impact on me. Like for well, there's so many examples. I mean, one of the most amazing things she did, and I, it's the last chapter of the book, so you probably haven't got to that yet, but oh, yeah. the last chapter of the book, it's, it's about, no, no, I, I only sent it to you yesterday. That'd be amazing <laughs> yeah. if you'd done that. I sounded like, I thought for a second, then I sounded like that Channel 7 reporter that interviewed Adele. <laughs> that, that didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to admit that I haven't finished the book. <laughs> no, no, I sent it to you. Elizabeth, if you'd finish that today, I'd be amazed. I did, I did an interview with someone uh, yesterday morning from a um, media, yesterday afternoon from a certain media outlet. Um, I think she'd had the book for maybe about a week, but I hadn't, hadn't read it. And I felt so bad because I could see, I was saying stuff like, as you might know in chapter eight, she's going, oh, yes, yes. Oh, God. Just it was really awkward. <laughs> it makes me cringe. Uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, the last chapter basically is about, I found myself talking about my dad in therapy a lot and just like, I started this session, actually, just to backtrack a bit, I, I said to my psychologist when I first met her, I said, oh, look, I don't have a mental illness and I've always been really happy. So I figure with you and me, I'll probably organize to see you once a month and we'll just check in and just we'll just see how I'm going. And then I said, yeah, that's fine. I ended up seeing her nearly every single week for 2020, wow. like wow. nearly every single week. Like, yeah. And I just, and in December, she said, okay, Hugh, so I'm, uh, I'm going on leave for a couple of months. And I You're went, like, no. <laughs> Well, I didn't understand. I, I went, oh, cool. So we can still do this by Zoom, I'm guessing, wherever you are. And she goes, no, I'm not I working. I need a break went, from you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. Hang on. What, what, what do you mean? You, I can't speak to it all. She goes, no. I, went, I sent some emails. She goes, I won't write back. I'm not writing back. I was like, oh, my God. What? So this is it. She goes, no, I'm not it. I'll, I'll be back in two months' time. And I was like, who do I talk to about stuff? So anyway, it was, um, it was amazing. An amazing turnaround from like, I'll see you once I'm like, please don't go on holiday, you know, like yeah. begging her. So, um, yeah. but one of the things we've, uh, we found myself, to, she asked what kind of person I'd like to be remembered as. So I remember one of the questions and I said, um, uh, humble and kind. And then in a session, um, a few weeks later, she said, oh, I'd said to her, the reason I had kids when we did was because I just saw dad one day looking a bit older. He just looked a bit older. And I said to Penny, I don't, I don't want dad to miss out on the grandkids. You know, we've got to have kids and, and um and through this whole process of like she asked me to describe dad and i said oh humble and kind and she goes no it's funny they're the two words we remembered as and then but as the sessions went on she finished this session once like i've been chatting for dad about dad for like 55 minutes and she goes, i just stopped i just want to talk to you about something and she did this five minute speech which i just wish i had recorded yeah it was the most extraordinary five minutes and she finished with this she goes uh, we were talking about how dad is so humble and he's, he's not from privilege. He's not entitled. He's a, he was a Sri Lankan kid who got put on a boat and traveled out to Australia with his family to escape the civil war in Sri Lanka. 
um, and had to fight and claw for every opportunity in Australia. Like it wasn't handed to him. Uh, he was a subject of heaps of racial vilification, all that kind of stuff, awful stuff. But he worked so hard to bring his family into, you know, privilege and entitlement. Um, and and I, but what I love, I just, so I love how humble he is. I love how hardworking he is. I love how honest he is, how there's not a, not a, even a sense of entitlement or privilege about him. Like he never expects mm-hmm. anything. Ever. And anyway, so Anita said to the end, my sucks at the end. And so I just think the reason you had your kids when you did is because, not because you wanted your dad to meet your kids. I think you wanted your kids to meet your dad. And oh. I was like, Geez. and I just cried and cried and cried. And I was like, <laughs> Oh my God, that's amazing. That's, that, that's true. I, I, that's, that, you're actually right. I want, I want my kids to be connected to the hardworking, honest, um, you know, humble Sri Lankan kid, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so it's things like that she did were just amazing. But I wrote about that as the last chapter of the book. Just, and I haven't, dad, dad doesn't know this yet. I'm going to his house tomorrow to read it to him. Um, so he's got no idea. Um, I sent it to mum to check shoes and he goes, why does your mum get to read the draft? And I don't. And I went, oh. I, I just trust me. It's fine. It's fine. You will get to read it. So I'm reading to it tomorrow, which I'm excited and nervous about. Those little reframes that psychologists, that professionals are able to do, it just, yeah, they're the, it's the reframes of how you're looking at something and they just get you to look just slightly to, you know, another totally. just off center off what you're looking and then the whole picture just comes into focus. It really is amazing. And one of those moments you talk about happened to you when um, she guided you through a breakthrough when she said, it's okay just to let go, which is, of course, yeah. it's the title of your second book. Can you talk us through that moment and what happened? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that happened which got me to arrive at the title of the book. But so the first thing that happened to me, I, I kind of had the realization of how powerful it was to let go of all the shit we're hanging on to a couple of years ago, but I didn't pay attention to it. I was, I was, it was about this time of year, actually. Um, and it was, I was on the way to Maroochydore to go to Port Adelaide's pre season camp. And I was burnt out, like I was completely burnt out and really, I was really struggling. It had been a massive year work. In fact, the first book had just come out as well and dealing with all the, the publicity or just everything, I was burnt out. And I was in the car on the way to Maroochydore going down the freeway from the airport to meet all the Port Adelaide guys where I was going to, the job was they had to, didn't have to, but they were asked to get up and, and share a story about their life, a really vulnerable story from their life, which I was anxious about because they'd never done anything like this. And I'm there in the car going, I've got no, I've got no energy left to draw on. I've got nothing. I'm yeah. completely cooked. How can I facilitate this session? And I was like, I think I'm going to tell him my flight got cancelled. And I was genuinely thinking about saying that. And one of the buses drove past and all the young boys were on it. They saw me. I was like, okay, I've been spotted. This is, this is happening. <laughs> yes. And I put the radio on and this song came on. And it was my favourite song from when I was in my early 20s. It's a song called Let Go. And I think it's by Fru Fru or Frau Frau. I've never known how to pronounce it. But the lyrics of the song are let go, let go, just jump in. There's beauty in the breakdown. Yeah. I've listened to that song a million times before, but never properly listened to the lyric. And that hit me so hard. I was like, so I went to the camp and I opened the session by saying, I don't totally want to be here. I'm so burnt out. I'm really, but I, but I, but I love you guys. And I, and I, this is a really important session for us. But if I'm being really honest, I just, I've got nothing left. And I just sort of sat down and, and they were, they were incredible. Like they took it from there, but and then I listened to Let Go nonstop. And I was like, oh my God, those lyrics are amazing. Let go, let go, just jump in. There's beauty in the breakdown. And I was like, there is beauty in the breakdown. My gosh, I've just had like, had a mini breakdown in front of 44 men aged 18 to 44. And it was beautiful. Mm. Like, it was really beautiful. So um, the next 
yeah, and then the next time I had that, and I should have paid attention to it, but I kind of just life carried on, you know, when I had a rest and go, I was like, oh, I'm fine. Um, but then, yeah, when I was, I don't know, probably six sessions in with my psych, she said to me, she said, um, I'm telling these stories and, and I, and she said, Hugh, there just comes a time in someone's, when, in your life when you realize you just need to let go of all the stories you've been carrying from your past. And I couldn't actually talk. I wasn't crying. I couldn't talk. Yeah. I just couldn't. I was like, oh my God, I have been carrying these. Like, they're, like they've, when she said it, it, I was like, yeah, it's been heavy. Like, I feel like it's this weight's been like, I don't have to carry them around. Like this from so many things, like, you know, I don't know where to begin. I mean, people have to read the book if all things have to let go of, but like shame, I was carrying so much shame around the way I acted when my sister was really sick and the fact that I, you know, went and stayed at my girlfriend's house every single night for like when my sister was really sick. I was like, I'm such a bad person for that. And then I went, no, no, hang on, with my psych, she's like, no, let go of that. You're not a bad person. You did a bad thing. But also, if we look at it, you're an 18 year old, you've got a girlfriend and a driver's license for the first time in your life. Totally. And I was like, oh my God, I'll do that again now. Like, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would make that decision again now, I think. Like, of course I empathize with that version of me. Yeah. And then, and then I was like, oh, shit. So I let go of that. And I, just, and I literally just went, that's it. I'm letting it go. I'm not going to carry that around anymore. Um, then I had this, this story I told in the book, which you might have read this one about how when I, was 10, <laughs> when I was 10 years old, I went to my first basketball training. Yes, that was so I, sad. <laughs> no, that, that was horrible. <laughs> I, no, I, know, I was laughing I know. initially and then I stopped and I looked at my son and I just felt, oh, was so sad. <laughs> but, I, but, but I laughed and I was writing it. And then I looked at my son as well and I got really sad as well. But for everyone who, for people who aren't going to read the book or haven't read the book, which is all of you because it's not out yet. But um, <laughs> I, I went to basketball and I was like, and you, I didn't know who the guys were. I'd never met them before. We're all nine, 10 years old. And I was so excited. And Dad had bought me a new basketball and I'm walking in their new basketball boots. And I'm like, this is the greatest day. Oh, darn. I don't, I don't think I can hear it again. It's so sad. And I, and I walked towards these, these kids and I was like, I'm usually quite shy back then, but I was like, these guys and me, we love basketball. We're going to be mates. And this guy just turned around and he goes, oh my God, look at your teeth. And I was like, oh shit, is he talking about me? And I turned around, there's no one behind me. And I sort of smiled and they all started pissing themselves. Oh. I had really buck teeth. <laughs> And I also had to call me Bugs Bunny. And I was like, they're all like going, look at your eyeballs. They're huge. Are you a rabbit? And I also had to say that. And I was like, oh my God, this is not good. I've never heard, like no one's ever spoken to me like that before, ever. Like at school, everyone was so friendly. And we loved each other. And I wasn't used to like, I guess you'd call that kind of banter in a sporting club, but I'd never, I'd never experienced that before. Like my dad and I never talked like that. We were so loving. No, it's not banter. So, it's cruel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I agree. But anyway, and they just went for the whole, whenever I tried to talk, I was like, okay, just join in and like, if you can laugh about it, go, yeah, I've got, and every time I try to talk, that will say, what's up doc? Like, like funny would, but I couldn't talk. I couldn't get a word out at training. And dad picked me up and I was pretty quiet on the car on the way home. And then I, I, then I just cried, and I just cried in, my, in my room <laughs> that night. I just went straight to just cry. I just bed. I was just like, I couldn't stop crying. But anyway, and yeah. <laughs> now I, what I should do now is produce a photo of myself and, I, and you'd go, oh, they do no. have a point. <laughs> they do have a point. <laughs> They do want you. Oh dear! It's very hard to look back on photos of me and and, and go, "What are they talking about?" Like it it, it was it was real. Like there oh, was a no. <laughs> But anyway, I mean, yeah. But anyway, that night I told myself this story: like you're not a good-looking person, and that was like even on my first date with my wife Penny. I'm age 35, and I'm going be funny, be entertaining because you're not you're not good-looking enough for it. Like you are not good-looking oh. enough for it. So you got to. 
so it's funny they're the stories that kind of stick yeah. with us and then and then talking to my psych about it she said um she goes oh okay so um what, what what other things happened when you told yourself that and i was like oh, i told myself that you know it really matters to be a really nice person otherwise because i'm not good looking enough and she goes well that's interesting so because of the way you felt like you looked you made an effort to be a really nice person that's pretty cool and she said do you know any very good looking people who aren't nice people and i went heaps <laughs> and she said, yeah that's interesting that, that's interesting and then she said um uh and then she said what else did you and i said oh, i decided that like sense of humor is, is a really attractive thing like that's a really good thing Mm. so i i became fascinated with humor and being funny and like not at my own expense just like observing things in it around the world and she goes okay well there's some really cool things that have come from that moment so i think you need so to let true. that go and just be, just be grateful for it and then you can let it go and i was like and it's gone and i was like just crossed yeah. it off all this that's another thing gone and just had so many moments like that where i just i let things go like the expectation that i put up when my sister got sick Sorry, I'm doing really long answers here. Sorry. No, no, you kind of are really answering all my questions at once. <laughs> <laughs> it's really going well. Don't worry. Okay, I'm good. Don't apologize. So, so, so when my when my sister got really sick, we would um, when my sister got really sick, we would sit on the, my, one of the things. My, our family were obsessed with Billy Connolly, the comedian. Mm. And when my, I remember these memories of, of like I have these memories of us. My sister's so sick with anorexia, like it's horrifying what she looks like and we'd pile onto the couch after dinner and we'd watch billy Connolly videos like cassettes and i wouldn't i'd be watching billy and all but i'd also be watching mum and dad because they'd be crying from laughter they'd be Aww. laughing so much and smiling i'd be going that's amazing like look what he's doing to mum and dad they were crying 10 minutes ago because georgia won't eat yeah. look what he's doing to our family like this is unbelievable and i kind of watched that and went i think i can do i think i can be that person around the house i can be mm. a storyteller i can be entertaining and funny like i can tell funny stories about my day and i started doing that and i it made them so happy and then that just spread to all areas of my life like friendship and like work i mean it, it was it's my job now right that's my job yeah, to so tell stories to help people to feel happier that is my job yeah and it all came from that moment and the problem was whenever i didn't feel like doing that whenever i was exhausted and didn't feel like being entertaining i'd get really anxious i'm talking about like at a pub with my mates and i felt like we we're a bit flat like I just wouldn't. Have you read Chapter Four yet? Chapter about my nude run. My nude I was run just that. reading it before we stopped yeah. because I was interested in it because you said at the start you dedicate it to your kids and then you said don't read Chapter Four. So then I read. I was reading really quickly trying to get Chapter. No, it's four. halfway through. It's halfway through Chapter Four. Yeah. No, so I you, just started. Oh uh, well, the the point there is that like once on a footy, I remember being away with my mates on a footy trip in Adelaide, and everyone was so flat one morning because we'd had such a big night. Mm. I was like, I got to do, I got to do something, and I just said to one of the guys, "Get everyone out on the front balcony." The this is in this Adelaide CBD, right? I said, "Get everyone out in on the front balcony." He's like, "Yeah, no, what are you doing?" And I said, "I don't know yet, but I'll do something." <laughs> and I disappeared a few blocks away, and I was like, "Okay, I need to repeat. I'll sprint past them as far. I'll just sprint. That'll be fun. I'll, I'll just sprint and not even look at them." And then I was like, "Nah, need something else. I'll take my top off. I'll take my top off and just sprint. That'll be funny." And I was like, well, "I'm taking my top. I'll take everything off." And I got completely nude at ten o'clock in the morning. Monday morning Adelaide CBD and I just sprinted past them completely nude all like I was just like I just need to make them laugh like I just I'm so uncomfortable with how flat everyone is here um and and I just like it's the amount of ridiculous stuff I've done because of the expectation to make people mm. laugh mm. it's just like it's just ridiculous did it make them laugh I've never seen laughter like it in my oh. life <laughs> no no oh it was and it, uh, the, the, the amazing thing was this guy drove this guy as i was about to take off i was completely nude this cyclist drove past like a this middle-aged guy in full lycra wrap around sunnies everything 
and he rode past me he goes you're a fucking idiot like that. and i went <laughs> and, I, and in my head i'm like you are correct <laughs> but that, i'm not even gonna but, argue with that <laughs> yeah but his sledge just made me something clicked inside me i was gonna like jog past and i was like this could be actually funnier so he goes you're a fucking idiot and rode off and i just took off after him and i just started chasing him as fast as i could and as we're getting close to the pub all my mates saw him and then me coming in they started cheering and he thought they were cheering him so he started waving at everyone like just going get out boys and then he sort of looked over his shoulder and goes what the fuck and i was just like i was like my arms were pumping my knees were like driving i was like it's the fastest i've run in my life and i'm running after this guy and he goes the fuck is wrong with you anyway, i've never in my life it was in 2003 and i still get messages frequently saying my life will never get better than that moment of seeing you chasing a man on his, oh, so his it was life. all worth it then <laughs> it was amazing it was amazing everyone so I'm lifted. That because yeah, everyone, yeah. <laughs> these are the stories that you tell did you tell this story to your psychologist no i didn't tell her that oh much. i was I, gonna I actually, say these must be the most entertaining sessions she has all day i i actually i paused as i, I write the book i was about to tell I, she said oh what are some examples of like the stuff you've done and i went well there's one Mm, I don't know actually I, let me think I can't tell her that I can't tell her that no. I know it should be I know it's a safe space but I don't feel like telling her that so I feel like it'd be really awkward afterwards going, okay. that's a that's a good example that's moving good on example. shame yeah 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 if you experience shame well, I'll tell you what I'll tell you what Elizabeth, there's a fair bit of shame involved when when the nude runs over and you're in the middle of the CBD at 10 o'clock in the morning, people are on the way to work and, and we, you're just walking completely. Cause my, my, my clothes are like five blocks away. And I was oh, like, yeah, the joke's hey. over. No one's watching anymore either. Everyone, everyone had gone back in. So I was like, Oh boy, this is bad. And so I'm like scurrying, <laughs> scurrying from like <laughs> hiding behind like, like, like um, bins on the side of the road and like sprinting to another bin and then sprinting to like a light post. And then like, <laughs> I feel, like, I feel like this is a great segue to my questions I have about shame. There you go. Go on. Well, there's such big, oh dear, there's such huge topics that you are talking about letting go of. One of them being shame and our relationship with shame and, ha- and, and the ways that that kind of manifests within us. What did you learn about shame, apart from that story, um, through your work with your psychologist and I guess what you've, yeah. what you've explored in the book? And, and um, yeah, how does that show up in our lives, shame? Well, first of all, we all have it. Every single, mm. it is such a human experience to feel shame about something. Like we, something will happen. And, we, and, and but the thing with shame is that we, it makes us hide. Like it makes us go... Oh, no one can know that. Like, cause I want to fit in. I want to be popular. I want people to love me. And I think if people know that, mm. then they won't love me. Like that. So I need to, um, I need to keep this really quiet. I can't talk about it. And the problem is when it's in our head and we don't talk about it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And it's, uh, and it makes us hide from the world. So, um, in year nine at school, my, I was, I was playing cricket in, with the, um, in the first team, which is like all the year 12s and year 11s. Right. And my math teacher, was also the cricket coach and one day he hadn't marked my test results mm. and he gave them to me at cricket in front of everyone and i got 38 percent. and he goes this is the lowest mark i've ever got for this test i've ever seen for this test um and before that i was quite a conf- i was confident in saying hang on what, i don't understand this what's going on i don't get what what, what sorry what's what i don't can you explain this but because i was so bad at maths but i was very confident to go what on earth are you talking about what do you mean x equals y to what it's they're bullshit. not numbers what are you talking it. about they're not numbers <laughs> yeah horrific yeah horrific like quadratic equations. Like when have you ever Awful. used that to solve anything? Never. Anyway, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but it shouldn't <laughs> dominate. Anyway, oh, this is another topic. Um, and so from that moment on, I went, oh my God, I'm, I'm stupid. I'm dumb. Everyone's yeah. laughing at me like, oh my God, you're 38%. 
So I was like, I'm stupid. And I, I stopped. That was when I stopped acad- I, 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 academically for like a year. I didn't talk. I don't understand anything. I was like, I can't let anyone know here that I'm, that I'm not smart. Yeah. Because then I'll be less popular. I'll be less cool. I'll be less likable. And so I went through, as you know, in your 10 and 11, like this really, like, I was really anxious around like, I'm not, and I, the thing is, I loved English. I was a good writer. I loved history, loved humanities, yeah. but it just made me think, no, I'm actually dumb. I'm actually dumb. And it wasn't, I was very lucky. I was very lucky because I had sport and I had a scholarship at the Victorian Institute of Sport. So I got a lot of confidence from that, which flowed back into academic by year 12. So I was lucky, but that this is a mild version of shame, right? Some people yeah. have fucking horrific things happen to them. Like yeah. our little sister, Georgia, she was sexually assaulted when she was three years old, right? And ever since then, she told herself she deserved it. She's not a good person. And she was three. Like I think about, you know, my kids five and two at the moment. I, I can't like, I mean, basically my sister told herself when she was three years old, I'm such a bad person. I deserve that. Yeah. And she told herself that story forever. Like it, it caused anorexia nervosa um, because she had such a low self-esteem and she didn't tell anyone about it because she was three. How do you communicate what just happened at age three? Yeah. It was a to- just so people, it was a total stranger who came off the street. It wasn't anyone that we know. It wasn't a family member or friend. It was a. It's chilling, um, that aspect. Yeah. It, oh, it's strange, horrific. Isn't it? Yeah. Being a parent. Yeah. But that, oh, horrific. I mean, but this is what I've heard Brené Brown and Oprah Winfrey talk about this. And Oprah said, you know, there's this horrific suicide rate around, around sexual assault victims. Yeah. And she said, it's not the sexual act that kills people. It's the shame that comes with it. And the thing with shame is we, we, we don't tell anyone. I felt enormous shame for the fact that when my sister was really sick, I just went and stayed at my girlfriend's house as much as possible. So much shame. But I didn't talk about it. I wasn't going to ever talk to someone about it. The first time I told someone was after about 526 pints at the cricket. And I was eating a chicken savlaki in a gutter with my friend mm-hmm. on Smith Street in Collingwood. And I told him, I don't know where it came from. And I'm like crying into my chicken kebab. I felt so good. Then, well, I didn't feel, I felt awful the next day because I was hungover, but I felt this shame was just, I was like, oh my God, I feel so much better. I told someone, you know, we got, we got to start and you got to, but here's the thing though. You have to, you have to choose the right person to talk to about this stuff. Yeah, it's so heavy true. And you, you can't tell someone who's going to go, oh, that's no good. What's, um, what are we doing tonight? Or we can't, you can't yeah. tell someone who goes, or you'll oh, be right, mate. Be- oh, it's okay. Like, yeah. Oh, that's a bit, yeah. yeah. So true. Or even people who downplay it and go, oh, come on, don't be silly. That, that's, yes, which guys like, must like do it, a lot as well. Yeah, especially. No, yeah. Not, yeah, and not because we're bad people. We don't know how to, we haven't been taught how to deal with someone opening up to their shame, but you will know that person who goes, oh, tell me more about that. Mm, like, mm. I, I know what it feels to feel really shit about something. I've done some of that before, or yeah, I'm here with you. Like, let's let's get into this. That, that kind of person, you know, totally. and, and it's amazing. It doesn't have... It's great to be a psychologist, but it doesn't have to be. The first person I told about my shame about abandoning my sister, like what I did was I chose to be with my girlfriend instead of my sister when my sister was sick. And I felt, I felt like I'm such a bad person because of that. I wasn't a bad person. I made a bad decision. I, I made a bad decision. That's human. We all make bad decisions. You know? And when you start talking about it, you start to realize and you forgive yourself for things and you feel so much lighter about the world. You really do. Mm. That's it. That leads very nicely because some of the, my next question, because there's so many huge topics that you discuss, like shame and expectation, perfection, um, stress, all these kinds of things. And you talk about letting it go for people listening that maybe don't know what they need to let go of or are aware of some, some of the things are resonating and they know that that's what they do need to let go of. How do you then let go of it? Yeah. So I've tr- what I tried to do in this book was conclude. I mean, I'm, I'm very big on practical 
strategies. Like there's some beautiful books out there that talk about these things, but I, I've always felt like there haven't been many strategies attached to practical things where you go, I can do that. I think one of the reasons the first book was so popular because there were just practical steps you could do. This stuff's a little bit harder. It's not as black and white and just answer these three questions and do this, but there's a whole lot of stuff. Like one of the things people need to let go of is ego. I think our ego is causing some serious problems. Like um, I was in traffic the other day and I was turning right onto, for people not in Melbourne, I was on Palm Road, which is horrendous traffic wise, especially now the world's opened up again. I'm turning right onto Olympic Boulevard mm-hmm. to go to one of the sporting clubs there. I know that exact turn. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. You wait for, so you can wait yeah. for like 10, 15 minutes to turn mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. but there was no traffic going straight, right? Everyone's going straight past really quickly. And I'm waiting. I finally got to the front and I'm late. And this guy turned up, right. he just rolled up right next to me, put his indicator on and just tried to get my attention, try and nudge in front of me. And I was like, you're fucking kidding yourself. Not a chance. I've waited 15 minutes to get here. So I sort of edged and looked the other way. Yeah, to do the passive aggressive. Like, no, there's no. Yeah, like not a <laughs> yeah. chance. And I'm there and I'm thinking, I was actually writing about ego at the time. And I'm like, why aren't I letting this man in? Like, it's not going to slow me down. I'll get through in the next set of lives. I don't know this man's story. Like yeah. his wife could be giving birth. His kids could be in hospital. He could be running like for a job interview. I don't know. In all those scenarios, if a guy came up to me and said, can I just jump in front of you? Because I'd go, of course you can. I feel like it was ego just going, you're not getting in front of me. I've been waiting 15 minutes. You're not getting in front of me. And I was like, so what I did was, and I turned around and said, look, I beat my horn because you could see him going, how am I going to get in here? Because I'd pushed in front. And I sort of waved to him. I reversed up and said, said, he did the biggest fist pump I've ever, it was like he'd kicked a goal for ball. He's like doing this massive fist pump. So I was like, I think I'm going to do that too. So I started like doing a fist pump out the window. (laughs) So we're fist pumping each other, right? We're just like doing like this. And then as he goes around the corner, we just, he just started doing a thumbs up. So I was like, I'll do that. So we kept doing that. <laughs> like three hours later, I told my wife that story and I'm still grinning and I'm still yeah. buzzing. It's such a, such a lovely moment. If I had taken the other option, let my ego decide, I would have just like gone, it would have pissed me off. I would have gone. Yeah. And it would have ruined, really ruined your afternoon yep. probably. You did share that story at the show that um, my mum and I came and watched, oh, geez, five lockdowns ago. I can't even remember now. Um, oh, and, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And I loved it then. And it's funny because that show really had an impact on my mum. And she's always doing things like that now. Like really? the example you said, or letting people Amazing. in a huge long line, this lady that wanted to buy something at Big W and we'd been waiting for so long but she had one thing and she was like it's like that thing Hugh said like you just let someone in and it made this woman's day and it's such (laughs) a simple act of letting go that you're not going to find in I don't know like some spiritual book from India it's just like this simple act that you can implement into your everyday life to let go of ego right yeah totally totally and so I think and and then to go further on that and and then to attach a a practical strategy to it what I found was when my psychologist said to me how do you want to be remembered like, hey, I want your kids to talk about it when so you're no true. longer around. She said, choose two words for me. And I chose humble and kind. Mm. And she said, just have a think about those words whenever you feel like your ego's maybe talking or whenever your ego's like just rearing its head, just think about those words. So I, um, I do a lot of running. Like I love, I'm obsessed with sprinting, which is a weird thing for a 41-year-old man to do, but I love it. And um, someone took a photo of me sprinting the other day in a race I was in. And I was like, whoa. I look, that's, I'm very happy that that's like, I look quite ripped there. That's awesome. And I was about to put it on social media yep. and I was like, going to share this. And I was like, hang on a minute. Why am I sharing this? What's the purpose? I was like, I think I want people to see that I'm really fit at the moment. <laughs> yes. And I was like, okay, why do I need to show what's the, what's happening there? And I was like, hmm, maybe I'm feeling a bit insecure and I want a bit of love and people to go, wow, you look amazing. Some validation. Yep. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, well, how do I want to be remembered? Humble and kind. 
would a humble person put up a photo of themselves looking ripped on Instagram? No. No. And so I didn't post it. And I felt so good about it. I was like, wow, the thing I've told everyone to do in the book, it really works. Like it's just yeah. really worked for me just there. So, and, I'm, and by the way, there's nothing wrong. I'm not, this is no, just me personally. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with people wanting to share photos they're proud of. If you're proud of something, absolutely share it. I'm not, that's, that's not the point of the story. For me though, proud is the work we do in schools or the work I do, you know, with individuals. It's, it's not sharing pictures of what I look like. That's just yeah. me. For other people, absolutely. If you're really proud of it, I'm, I, I'm not for a second saying don't do that, but this is just a story about me and what works for me. And, and I would feel, I know I would regret posting a picture of myself. Yeah, it wouldn't feel good. Although maybe you should have posted it so those kids, if those kids that you play basketball with when you were 10, they could now look <laughs> Maybe you should have posted it for them. <laughs> oh, you how ripped you are now. Oh, my God. Oh, it's been because of them that I've got this whole thing. Yes, I need them to see I'm ripped. Oh, um, so these are um, the last couple of questions from me. But, um, you know, these are, some of these are your journal entries, which is very difficult to do. And, yeah, you know, yeah. revealing the deepest part of yourself. Why was it so important for you yeah, to reveal these kinds of things about yourself, to talk about these intimate moments in therapy as well that usually mm. are not shared? What are you hoping people get out of it and why was this all important for you? Yeah, so it's a really great question. I, I kept a journal with me during the psychology sessions that I had and I wrote copious amounts of notes. I recorded the sessions, a lot of them, um, and then I would listen back to them and I'd make, make more notes and... I remember one night I, I was just reading over it and I was looking through the stories that I'd written and I was like, Oh my God, these are so embarrassing. I, <laughs> like when I've finished this, I probably need to burn this journal. I can't have people reading this. <laughs> yes. And so I'd hide it. I'd just hide it in the bottom drawer of the, the study and just go, shit, I hope no one reads that. And well, just not that I just, no one can read it. And then as, as the lockdowns went on in Melbourne and it got harder and harder and harder and I was chatting to more and more, I was asking a lot of people how they're going, what they're finding difficult. I realized that at the heart of everyone's problems was the same things that I was journaling about. Like, so I found myself telling the odd person going, Oh, it might be worth thinking about this. Maybe, maybe you want to think about the expectations you're putting on yourself right now to be perfect. Like that's unfair right now. And yeah. blah, blah, blah. And, and, and then people are going, Oh, that helps so much. Thank you. And then I thought, do you know what? I, it took me, I started talking about gratitude, empty and mindfulness like 10 years ago. It took me eight years to write a book about it. It has been really helpful for people who probably could have done with it a lot earlier. I'm not going to wait eight years to write this book. I'm doing this now and I'm going to share what's in here and I'm look like a goose and people are going to laugh at me and, and feel very awkward for me. But if it helps people to just feel, you know, a bit more okay, then that's a great result. So Absolutely. that's kind of how it happened, I guess. Yeah. And what, how do you think you've changed from your first book to your second as a person? Uh, well, I, I really feel like I've, I've had to, Life's been a lot more messy for me since, you know, life's been, I've been so lucky in my life. Like I have just been so lucky to not experience. When you put my sister's mental illness aside, I haven't really experienced trauma. I haven't like it's, it's. Um, and then two years ago, like with um, some issues we're having with our eldest um, and like being a dad for the first time mm. um, and trying to work full time, be a dad and then COVID happened. And then all of a sudden I was like, this is pretty traumatic what I'm going through. So all mm. of a sudden I feel like um, life has been really messy for me. And that is 
it didn't feel like it last year and it probably doesn't feel like it quite yet, but I know it will be a blessing. Like it, I know it's a good thing. Mm. And so this book came from, the first book came from literally, I just sat down and went, right, what are all my stories? Write them out. Cool. That took two months. And here they are. What order should we put them in? Yep. That looks good. This book was like, I'm writing what's happening to me right now in my life. And it was really hard, mm. really, really hard. Um, so, and it comes to so this book naturally comes from a place of there's much more heart in this book, much more heart and much more, much more vulnerability in this book. So that's kind of how it's different. I guess, or how I'm different. I know you said that you're still um, in the midst of it all, you know, well, you know, I guess it's still all kind of happening at the moment. And this book has come at that time, but even at this preliminary stage, what do you think are the main lessons you've learnt now? You're where you are now. The book is coming out. Yeah. Uh, well, two things that, that life is always messy. Like I remember saying to my psychologist, I was just so annoying that thing, this, this happens and this happens, this keeps happening. Just everything's just so messy for me. And she said, Hugh, after knowing you for a year, I can tell you your life has always been messy. Mm. It's only, this is not new to you. Like if you've always, but what counts is what you do when you're in the mess. Like that's what really counts. So, so that was a really big moment a really big moment um, of, of learning for me because even when I was writing the final chapter of the book, I was like, I'm struggling at the moment. So that means I'm a fraud. Like I've started telling everyone this stuff works, but then I realized, no, that's not the point. Like you continually need to remind yourself, like you'll be challenged and challenged and challenged and challenged again. When life's messy, it's what you do when you're in the mess that really counts. Um, so that was one thing. And then the other thing I look, just looking back on it, I think a lot of the stress and anxiety that we cause ourselves in life is we're trying to fit in. We're trying to be loved. We're trying to, you know, feel like we belong somewhere. But I think if we all just understood from a very young age that we are worthy of love and we are worthy of belonging as we are now, like we don't need to earn a certain amount. We don't need to, um, you know, we, we can be by ourselves, just by ourselves and no one else around and we're enough. Yeah. We don't need to earn a certain amount. We don't need to look a certain way. We don't need to um, have the so, so many followers on social media. Um, we're enough. You know, I think one of my really, really good friends is, uh, she's, what is she now? 42. Um, and she's, um, well, actually in a similar situation, she's a single parent um, and is finding, just finding that really, it's not, wasn't her plan, you know, like, and I'm sure people yeah. relate to this, but it's just like, this is not what, this is not what was meant to happen to me. I'm not meant to be by myself with it. Like, you know, sharing a child and then trying to, and she's just come out of a, a relationship that didn't work for it. Just didn't work. And she was just shattered. And, and, um, and I said to her, you, you know that, like, you know, you're enough. Mm. As you, you don't need a partner. You, you're loved. Like, you're worthy of love. Like, the fact that you don't have a partner doesn't mean you're not worthy of love. doesn't change anything. Um, and I, I feel like if we knew that from a younger age and it was really embedded in us, it would save us a whole lot of um, heartache and, and loneliness and, and, um, and stress and anxiety. You know, we feel like we're not fitting into a group and we get really stressed about that. But that's okay. Like you'll fit into another group where you, you know, with a group of people who make you feel like you're enough just as you are. So, yeah. Oh, that's such a beautiful way to end the interview. Thank you, oh, Hugh. Thank that you. was gorgeous. Oh, <laughs> pleasure. This is just my first long chat I've done about the book. And I'm really sorry if it was a bit rusty and a bit unlettered, but it's, um, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you. Oh, good. No, I loved it. And I'm very conscious of not um, tying up too much of your time. Otherwise I would ask you a million more questions, but thank you so much for sharing and for, yeah, I can't wait to finish the book. Of course, I'm not doing a channel seven reporter with Adele thing. I promise I will. <laughs> it wasn't my intention. I will finish no, it, no. but it's brilliant, been brilliant what I've read so far. And um, yeah, you must be so proud. So thank, yeah. Thank you for no. your time.
Can I, oh, pleasure. Can I say one thing? Go ahead. Yeah. For anyone who reads the book, there's a line in there, which I don't know how it got in there. Cause when you write books through this, there's like, there was two copy editors, the head publisher, someone else that I was working on the book with and myself all right. And one line got through and I fell off my chair and I read the audio book and I cannot believe I've had it removed. It's <laughs> yes. the first 40,000 copies that are sold because we've printed 40,000. Um, they're going to read a line, which I cannot. <laughs> what is it? It's just like, it's the opposite of humble. I just say, so, I'm saying this because I'm trying to get this out to many people. Just so it's I not that like picture printed of you, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's the front cover. Yeah. It's just the front covers, but. Run, running nude through Adelaide. That's it. That's a, <laughs> no, it's, um, it's uh, so there's a part, there's a part on body image because at the age of 40, for the first time in my life, I care about what my body looks like because I'm running so much and all of a sudden yeah. my body looks, it started to look more like an elite runner's body. I'm like, that's weird. And now I care about it heaps. I'm like, and I've been saying stuff like, why do I have four abs and all the guys I run with have like 12 abs? This is, and I'm getting really funny about it. Anyway, I'm trying to make the point. What I was trying to do is make the point that, <laughs> that even though my physique is probably better than it has been ever before, I'm more worried now. Like I'm more. Yes. There's more to maintain think, maybe. I don't know what it is, but I was trying to make that point, but I thought I'd done it, but someone along <laughs> the line was like, we need to make this a little bit more explicit. So, and I, I in the thousand times I read it before I went to print, I didn't miss say this line. And the line is, it must be said at the age 41, my body has never ever looked up. And I was like, ah, what? Never looked better. Did it say yeah. he's cut out yeah. with it says in 40 minutes, my, my body has never looked better. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. I would never say that. Would never, but it's in the book. There 40,000 people are going to go, fuck this guy's arrogant. <laughs> Your psychologist is going to read this and be like, these are not true to his values of being humble and kind. What? <laughs> this guy is so vain. <laughs> oh dear! Yeah, oh, also, so, you'll know if you got if you've got that copy where it says that you'll know you got the lucky copy. It might be what might be a kind, the kind of thing that you know in ten years time they're the copies that sell for triple the price because it's got that line. It's in got it. that line. It got that line where everyone goes, "He's not a good person. He's not. He's <laughs> full of shit." <laughs> yeah. I look forward to that very much. So, well, thank you again, yeah, you appreciate. So I love it. Chat to you again. Re- yeah, thank really you. lovely. Thanks. Thanks. Chat to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this chat. I'll pop everything you need, all the links in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, I'd love for you to post it on social media and tag me. If not, I'd appreciate it so much if you could hit subscribe, five stars, leave a positive review, any combination of the above really. All of it really helps get the podcast out there. Thanks once again. Chat next time. 